millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, as always, joined by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how's it going? I'm doing good, Will. How's it going with you? Good. I think we have a packed episode this week. I wanted to highlight a couple things before we start. First of all, we are still taking submissions for the mailbag episode for the holidays. You can send your any questions you have on anything Fever Dreams related to feverdreams at thedailybeast.com. We've gotten a lot of good submissions. I think you just sent me one today. And honestly, a lot that I think, huh, that's a great point. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. We'll get to the bottom <laughs> of it. And the other thing I wanted to flag just very briefly is Spotify Wrapped came out. And so this was telling everyone what their top podcasts were. And I saw a couple people, Fever Dreams was their top podcast. So that's very cool. Yeah, that was really touching, actually. I mean, I typically think of Spotify Wrapped as where it tells me what white noise sounds I've been listening to on loop. <laughs> it's genuinely really touching to see all the Fever Dreams popping up there and yeah we love you guys my spotify rap experience was you sort of force your friends to see what your spotify was and a friend of mine sent me his and it was like existential angst and like <laughs> sad boy music were the genres and i was like man i gotta check in on this guy <laughs> well i think they do package it sort of as a gen z friendly way it's like you were moody af i'm like i am nearing 30 i don't use this language <laughs> okay so kelly moving on one of the big grists right now on the right is the so-called Twitter files. What's going on there? Okay, Twitter files. On this podcast, we've followed for a long time the right's fascination with Hunter Biden. For them, he's sort of the smoking gun that never fully fired, but they really, really want him to be the central part in a conspiracy theory. So after Elon Musk takes over Twitter, he gives apparently inside access to the independent journalist Matt Taibbi to have a look at Twitter and see how Twitter might have been handling information about Hunter Biden. Now, if we roll back the clock two years now, around the 2020 presidential election, there was a leak supposedly of Hunter Biden's laptop from hell. The New York Post had a story about it. Twitter briefly censored the story saying, hey, we can't have you post that because it pertains to hacked materials It then overturns that policy, let the story run, whatever. So it was controversial, but fairly short lived. Now, fast forward to these Twitter files that Elon Musk releases to Matt Taibbi. They show some of the TikTok of Twitter deciding whether or not they were going to censor this story and again, ultimately decided against it. What's really interesting, though, is 
for the Elon Musks of the world, the story needs to be more than just a mildly interesting internal process narrative. It has to say something about censorship, about big government. So Matt Taibbi is taking these internal files and trying to spin a story about the Biden administration, which, by the way, was not in existence in 2020. It was a campaign censoring information about Hunter Biden. To do that, he posts screenshots of emails of the Biden campaign reaching out to Twitter and being like, guys, these tweets, not okay. Well, what are those tweets actually of? They are photographs of Hunter Biden's dick. So I'm not entirely sure this is, again, the smoking gun that the right wants. But nevertheless, well, they've turned this Twitter file story into something that they say was momentous, was hugely influential in the outcome of the 2020 election. Yeah. So let's talk about more sort of the lead up to this release. So last week, Elon Musk bans Kanye West from Twitter. Now, this would seem to be against Elon's statement that Twitter is going to be the free speech platform because he gets banned for mashing up a swastika and a Star of David. Reprehensible stuff. But not really an incitement to violence, I would say, as Elon claims it was. So then he, let's just say Elon would have had a reason to throw a bone to the right. <laughs> now, suddenly, Matt Tybee, who is in this sort of the intellectual dark web wilderness these days, he emerges. And I would say it seems as though he was being pushed. The story was sort of rushed out, perhaps, because Elon saying, oh, it's coming out now. Oh, gosh. Oh, we got to do some fact checking, whatever. So he comes out with these tweets that were kind of like Democrats have this influence over what goes on Twitter. And my proof for it is that Twitter employees donate more to Democrats. Not the greatest proof. And then he says, but the real problem is there wasn't government involvement in what Twitter took down about the laptop. And then you say, well, what? I thought this was about to be the government and all this stuff. I mean, it's kind of a jumble. There's kind of a couple of things to think about here. One is that they claim there's more coming, right? And they claim that documents have also been given to Barry Weiss, formerly of the New York Times. Oh, she'll get to the bottom of it. Awesome. Austin University is on the case. The, all the grad students at Austin University are digging through the Twitter files. But like sort of in my experience, this is something we deal with a lot, right? Where it's like some right wing figure is like, I have the big revelation, right? And then they come out with it and it's kind of a flop. And they say, well, there's a new revelation coming up. Just stay tuned. Obviously, the kind of the, the king of this is Jacob Wool. And so what I've learned from this is if people got something, they're going to put it out in the first bat. When you think about newspapers putting out like a series when they do big investigative series, the hot stuff's up top. They, they don't bury it. And so I really don't think this is going anywhere but like all you really need and we've seen this going back to pizzagate with the hacked emails and all this kind of stuff all you need is the appearance of secret material like when james o'keefe releases audio and often it's people saying what they say publicly but the idea of the secrecy sort of adds this sense that something was being hidden from me yeah absolutely i think the packaging of this is really fascinating one it's not written as a traditional journalism it's done in a series of tweets but there's something very cinematic about it my type starts this twitter thread with almost a definition of what Twitter is. It's like opening a book with the Oxford English Dictionary definition of liberty or whatever. So there's a lot of throat clearing. There's a lot of priming the audience to be, frankly, really pissed about something that, again, I don't think is a huge deal. I mean, we know that campaigns will routinely reach out to social media and say, please let us post this or like, you've got to take this down. And in the case of non-consensual nudes, I think they're absolutely within their right to do it. There were actually some interesting findings in there that I think subverted that narrative. He showed that the Trump, not campaign, but actual administration had reached out to Twitter complaining about things, complaining about the lockdown of Kayleigh McEnany's account. So if you're really concerned about the government meddling in social media, well, there's an actual elected administration reaching out to social media. And honestly, again, nah. 
What I do think is interesting about this, though, even though, again, bit of a nothing burger, is the immediate reaction from the right to these, quote, Twitter files. There is this huge just lunging at them, using them to indicate that there is this is their new fraud narrative. This is their new claim that something was fundamentally wrong with the 2020 election and that it needs to be cast out. And of course, the most obvious example of this is Trump himself. He goes on Truth Social because he's not tweeting, even though he's been reinstated. He posts about this Twitter thread and then he says, quote, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. So this is a former president, current candidate calling for the termination of elements of the Constitution, effectively because Twitter took down some dick pics. This gets at something that is like one of my favorite things, which is how the right's definition of fraud can be very shifting. Because so like, I think when people think of voter fraud, they think of like 2000 mules, essentially, like there is ballots are being manufactured, ballots are being destroyed, like there's a lot of the computers are being hacked, whatever. But a lot of times when you get down to it, like sort of more moderate Republicans who insist there was voter fraud, like what they mean is like the courts changed the voter laws and we think only state legislatures could do that. And you say, well, that's not really voter fraud. The election wasn't stolen. You might not disagree with how the decision was made, but that's not really what I think what the average person means when they say voter fraud. And so in this way, we're increasingly seeing this idea that voter fraud is Twitter not allowing the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop, which the other thing about this is people are like, how could this happen? How could Twitter make this decision? Well, guys, there's a big hacking thing in 2016. You remember it? And so like the idea that I think there's frustration on the right that like the 2016 hacking made social media sites a little gun shy about these kind of big caches coming out. And so it's like, look, you got boosted by it in 2016. You kind of have to pay the price in 2020. Yeah, totally. And to be clear, a lot of lefty shops have run into a similar problem. The outlet distributed denial of secrets. They post a lot of hack stuff. They're sort of like a WikiLeaks, but I think they probably have a more lefty bent. They've been kicked off of Twitter all the time for similar reasons, because like you said, social media sites are now pretty gun shy about posting hacked materials. So this is actually fairly consistent, I think, with Twitter's rules. Regardless, it was kind of rolled back. And all that aside, how many people were going to vote for Biden? Then they're like, oh, oh, no, I've actually seen a revenge porn picture of Hunter Biden on Twitter. I can no longer support Joe Biden. I'm going to vote for Trump. Like, I really, really do not buy this idea that this supposed censorship really shifted the election at all. I agree. I mean, like the actual allegations of corruption stuff, the sort of like my son Hunter materials, like the kick 10% up to the big guy, the allegations made by Tony Bobolinsky. I mean, that stuff got a lot of play. I will say it is pretty remarkable how big the blackout was on the Hunter Biden nude stuff. I mean, I remember talking to friends of mine and I'd be like, yeah, Hunter Biden nudes out there. They're all over 4chan. My friends would be like, what are you talking about? And so, I mean, in that way, it certainly was effective. I mean, I think it's reasonable to keep that stuff off Twitter. But for our purposes, I think let's also consider we're five days out maybe from this stuff coming out. And I have to say, even even the right-wing media, I think, which was really primed initially to seize on this, I think it's kind of landed with a thud. It hasn't really gone anywhere. What, what are your thoughts? Totally. I mean, that's why everything we're seeing in the right-wing media is about the response to these Twitter files, not about their actual contents. There's a lot of Fox stories now about the liberal media is making fun of Matt Taibbi. They're, see, they're all saying that he's doing PR for Elon Musk, the world's richest man. And I mean, they're saying he's doing PR because he is doing PR for the world's richest man. So... A lot of it is this Glenn Greenwald-esque 
sneering over liberal media types, over people's reaction to the story. But folks, if it's a meaty story, people are going to seize on it. And it's frankly just not. I'm looking at the front page of Breitbart right now. And so Emma Jo Morris, who is one of the New York Post reporters who was involved in reporting on the so-called laptop from hell, in the lead to her story, she says, despite the Twitter files not providing any revelations on the issue Oof. of the federal government <laughs> guidance censorship. I mean, this is someone whose career is very, very closely tied to the laptop from hell being this just villainous, oh my gosh, the revelations, you'll never believe what was on the laptop from hell. And even she's like, ugh, Twitter files didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, overpromised, underdelivered. And one more fascinating takeaway from this is so Trump's on Truth Social now calling for the termination of the Constitution. And oh, maybe 48 hours after that post, he's on there again, kind of playing a media referee, complaining that he never did call for the termination of the Constitution. He said, the fake news media is actually trying to convince the American people that I wanted to terminate the Constitution. This is simply more disinformation and lies, just like Russia, 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 and all of their other hoaxes and scams. Buddy, the post where you said terminate the Constitution is like uh, three posts below. We can scroll. The whole terminating the Constitution, this is just really bizarre. I mean, the idea that things are so crazy now. Trump is, he's gotten crazier, but also I think more marginalized. And so that this idea is like, all right, whatever. He wants to terminate the Constitution. The other thing I would say is that, look, I mean, these Twitter files... Maybe there's a bombshell. Maybe Elon Musk has completely insane news judgment and has decided to bury the the real Twitter file <laughs> bombshell on like episode five starring, gosh, who like Dave Rubin or something. But right now, I mean, the evidence suggests that despite getting all this access, really nothing, they haven't really found anything big. I mean, this is if you think about all the allegations conservatives have made about Twitter. So let's just think of what Cat Turd says, right? The infamous Twitter character Cat Turd. He's like, I'm being deboosted. I'm being shadow banned. I'm being ghost banned, whatever. All these like... Like ideas that Twitter is just this machine to drive prominent Republican figures insane by denying them their due amount of likes that then Elon gets in and like so far there's no evidence of that. I mean, I think of organizations, institutions that I follow really closely, Project Veritas, Fox News, Breitbart News. If I bought one of those and then I was like, all right, open up the emails. And then this was all I found. I mean, I I think it would really kind of shake my opinions about kind of the claims that have been made about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he bought the $44 billion posting machine, opened it up, and it turns out he and his friends are just bad at posting. You can't buy your way out of that. Will, speaking of being bad at posting, you have been in the weeds of the Kanye West camp. Tell me what terrible things you've found. I will say we're bringing some exclusive info here to Fever Dreams listeners because I spent the weekend talking to various figures in the orbit of Kanye West these days and people dropping dimes on one another, lots of feuds going around. And so this is complex. And people might say, well, who cares about Kanye West at this point? I hate to say this glibly, like that he's gone full Hitler, but I really don't know what other way to describe it. Full Hitler. Yeah. Mask I mean, he was literally saying like Hitler rules. I love Hitler, all this stuff. And so since last we talked on Fever Dreams, a lot has been going on. And I'm just going to lay the background here. And then I, I want to get into what people are telling me. What's sort of the Kremlinology of the Kanye West movement right now? But what I want to say is like, you might say, well, who cares? Well, the issue is these right wing figures you and I have followed for a long time, and some of whom are very interested in sort of mainstreaming and anti-Semitism and moving the Overton window. They have now, I don't know if I want to say seized control, but they have certainly obtained influential positions in the world of like one of the biggest figures in the country. And he's very interested in 
and working with them. And so I was tweeting some of this stuff and people said, oh, you're just platforming Kanye. Well, look, he doesn't need my help to get his message out there. But I think this is just truly a really bizarre moment in our politics and pop culture. So things started off with Kanye appearing on Tim Pool. We talked about Tim Pool. This is the guy, the gentleman who wears the beanie all the time and is sort of like, I'm a Democrat or I'm a liberal, but my views are far to the right of most Republican <laughs> members of Congress. How did that interview go? The Tim Pool interview turned out to be too hardball for Kanye. He stormed out when... Tim Pool was like, I'm not sure I'm going to explicitly say that Jews run the media. And Kanye's like, I'm out. I'm out. You won't name them. I'm out. So that was a bit of a blow up. And I think things have sort of deteriorated from there. He's gone on some even further fringe platforms. When the week starts, when last week starts, we're coming off of the Mar-a-Lago dinner with Milo and Nick Fuentes, the white nationalist. When the week starts, Nick, Fuentes, Milo, Kanye, they go to Tim Pool's compound in either Maryland or West Virginia that we were referring to about various things. A listener recommended we call it the pool house, which I think is also good. (laughs) We were calling it the Tim Pound. It was like just on the tip of my tongue. I was like, there's something obvious here. And then this listener was generous enough to point it out. So they roll out there on a private jet. Some remarks made by Gavin McGinnis later suggest that possibly in order to get Kanye on your show, you have to pay for him to fly out. Certainly, he claims that was the deal that was offered to him, that this is not Kanye's own jet necessarily that he's flying? Well, this is a huge thing on the right. Bit of a detour here. I was digging into some speaking arrangements for a lot of these far right speakers and like Candace Owens will demand a jet, stuff like that. So it's completely consistent to me that Kanye would be like, uh, yeah, actually charter one for me. It is interesting the amounts of money that's sort of washing around in this world. So he goes on and, and an issue we're going to see repeatedly in these media appearances is everyone just wants Kanye to turn it down about two notches. They want to say, don't say you love Hitler. Say the issue is liberal secular Jews and that Orthodox Jews are cool and that we just don't like the globalists. And so these are kind of the dog whistles that these guys all use. And the issue is that Kanye has no interest in these dog whistles and just wants to say it explicitly. So Tim Pool says, certainly I will admit some they in Hollywood have done you wrong. And then he basically starts getting bullied by Kanye and Milo and Nick Fuentes saying, who's they? Who's they? Triple parentheses, whatever. And then that's when Kanye storms out. So Then Tim Pool is left to fill dead air for about an hour and a half with the various people who live in the pool house. This is also sort of reveals how many people live with him that suddenly he can just be like, (laughs) like, oh, if our guests bailed, we wouldn't have a bunch of people to fill in living with us. I like to think that this is like a hotel where you just hit like the room number and they come rushing down. Like it's like a fire station and there's the pole that they slide down and drop right (laughs) into the podcast studio. No, exactly. So then Kanye goes on Infowars where he runs into sort of a very similar situation. He sees Seems more unhinged even than before. He's wearing a mask now and just really like, really like protocols of the elder of Zion type stuff where he's like, Nick Fuentes, why don't you talk about what's in the Talmud about all this pedophilia and all this stuff? I mean, in a way, this whole thing is kind of functioning like a weird PR thing for the people interviewing him because like I'm watching these things. I'm like, yes, Alex Jones is in the right. You need to cool it, Kanye. So then he says all this stuff. Alex Jones seems really uncomfortable. And ultimately, he makes it through the whole interview, but it's truly just insanely anti-Semitic. This is where he talks so much about his love of Hitler. And then over the weekend, Notably, Ali Alexander appears on InfoWars. Ali Alexander, another Fever Dreams character involved in the January 6th rally outside of Congress. I should say, he had the permit, not the riot itself was a rally. Yes, <laughs> permit holder. I'm not trying to do a, this was a peaceful protest kind of thing. Right, no, this guy made a video saying, I do not disavow this while zooming in on people storming the Capitol. Like, not a disinterested party here. Yes, yes. And so he's there, but interestingly, Milo is not. Now, what does this signify? Well, on Sunday, we find out that Milo has been 
been people were telling me, oh, Milo has been fired from the campaign. And then he confirmed that in an email to me on Sunday. So let's get into the nitty gritty, right? Let's get into what all Will has dug up and what we think is afoot here. Because I'll tell you what, some people said, oh, Milo has been ousted. I assume this means some adults are now in charge of the Kanye quasi presidential campaign. And I tell you, that's not what's going on. I'm astounded that the people who got the January 6th rally permits are not up to running a sane and uh, functional campaign here. I should say this information is gleaned from talking to people who talk to Kanye and around him. And also from watching a whole lot of live streams with absolute nightmare people. I was watching one and someone donated money to be mad that Milo had spoken to Zach Patrizzo, our colleague here at the Daily Beast, for an article we wrote. And they said, Zach Patrizzo and Will Summer? Are you effing kidding me? So this is the kind of stuff I'm wading through. Okay, so here's the deal. Why was Milo booted from Kanye's orbit? Now, there are a couple theories on this. One is that Laura Loomer, another Fever Dreams character, and the thing to understand about all these people is that they they often hate each other's guts, but they will sometimes work with each other when it's convenient. So Laura claims that Milo few months ago was spreading some rumors, some Me Too type rumors against her. And so this has created a sort of blood feud between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. Laura Loomer has been on this like months long tear against Milo. She's posting all kinds of kind of Twitter files of her own, right? In this case, sort of, I think maybe. Honestly, these are the Telegram files. These are better. These are better. I'm just for once in her life, want to be a citizen journalist. Laura Loomer has the goods, but because she's in on the text messages with these equally insane people, she's got a lot of Milo seeming to kind of slander Kanye before he came onto Kanye's payroll. A lot of even, I'm not even sure how to say it, like Milo maybe being homophobic toward Kanye. Yeah, he's saying Kanye's gay, Kanye likes white guys, I'm going to kill Kanye. And now look, these messages have not been authenticated, but Milo hasn't denied them. So that's where we're at. And so we know Laura's in touch with Kanye because she called into his InfoWars appearance. So another county heard from. Can I just like use my monkey paw here. Kanye is going to be told that he needs to have Jewish voices on his campaign so that he doesn't appear anti-Semitic. He's going to bring in Laura Loomer. I just feel in my bones that this is going to happen. Please set a timer for two months from now and tell me whether I was right. I think that's completely, I mean, two months from now, give it two days from now, I think. (laughs) So the idea is that Laura said to Kanye, hey, look at this. Look at these Milo trashing you. And also look at this video recorded a few years ago, which we talked about before, where Milo says, basically, I love to gather blackmail material on the people around me. (laughs) So possibly that might have been involved. Additionally, there's this idea that Milo got crosswise with Nick Fuentes, who he brought in initially, but that Nick was perhaps gaining too much influence over Kanye. There's this idea that he called into a live stream Nick had and said he's essentially like, he's kind of bigfooting him and saying like, I'm writing your check, you loser. You're my underling. And this was seen as sort of a big insult that Milo was causing more drama than he was worth. So that's where we're at. Ali Alexander apparently is now possibly running the show which brings us to gavin mcginnis i mean this is really like they're getting everybody in on this like this is the the whole squad is being revived through this connection to kanye so gavin mcginnis proud boys founder folks may remember him last in the news for faking his arrest by the fbi which infuriated the proud boys he claimed cost him tens of thousands of dollars in subscriptions (laughs) so i hope it was worth it so he flies out and he says i'm gonna convince kanye to not be anti-Semitic anymore. And we're seeing the same trope where he's like, I'm going to convince him that the problem are these secular Jews. So it's kind of like, let's direct this in a slightly more palatable way. This is a trope coming up on the right a lot, and I'm sure it already existed, but I'm really starting to see quite a lot of it is the sidestepping of overt anti-Semitism or the saying, oh, we don't dislike the real Jews. We don't dislike Orthodox Jews, conveniently a block that often votes for Trump. We dislike the secular Jews, the secular humanists with Jewish last names. This is just 
something to strip Jewish people of their Jewishness to say that being hateful toward them is not hateful because they're not adequately Jewish or not real Jews. It's just outright anti-Semitism. But it's something that's gaining a lot of hold, I think, on the right among people who want any sort of plausible deniability when they're banging the anti-Semitic drum. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to give you an example here, Gavin McGinnis says in this video, Jews have a lot to answer for for their bad actors. So like, this is the guy who's posing himself as sort of the moderate in this. So he flies out to LA with one of his cronies and they meet with Kanye and Nick Fuentes in this very bare warehouse. And we run into the same issue that Alex Jones did where they're trying to direct the conversation and make it, I don't know, like slightly more palatable. And then, but Kanye is just really just laying into all this like really vile hate speech and all this kind of stuff. And so Gavin tries to close the interview and by the way he's dressed i should say like the guy who sells springfield the light rail like he's got this like red <laughs> pinstripe suit and so he says kanye like you just gotta come on be a nice guy and kanye says jewish people it's time to forgive hitler and stop forcing your pain on everyone else so i mean this did not work out this kind of this train wreck keeps on rolling and it really is such a bizarre thing to see my sense is that even more kind of right-wing characters are going to be brought in here and really the only person who's winning here i would say is nick fuentes who actually is already so vocally anti-Semitic in a way that some of these other figures are not. He's absolutely thrilled by this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. He's the only person who can't really be shifted right here. He doesn't have a reputation to save. So none of this is really shocking coming from him. Well, I wanted to kick to one other thing, which it seems like Milo has slapped the West campaign with a bill for his great services. Looks like he charged them. I've been running around all day. I haven't seen this yet. So he charged them $116,000 for his service working on the rapper's bid to become president, according to a TMZ report. I would love, love to see that itemized. What exactly did each of these services cost? And also, I'd like to see that corresponding to days with Milo attached to the campaign versus overall Kanye West favorability numbers. Just be interesting. <laughs> Milo, I hope he gets his bag. <laughs> well, let me just say one more thing about that. It's good to lead into that. My suspicion is that the Kanye campaign, such as it is, is not done dealing with Milo. I think people are being very nice now. I guess if he's putting out the bill, maybe not. But I think there is a sense that the bus may be backed up over him a bit more than it already has been. Another possible reason for Milo's ouster is that Ali Alexander, who's purportedly in charge of the campaign, Gavin got very mad when I said that he had said that Ali was in charge and sent me all these rude text messages. But this sort of seems to be what's going on is that just a few weeks ago, we talked about Milo calling Ali a pedophile. So perhaps these guys were not meant to get along. And so I think there is more to come here as this whole like kind of fracas breaks up. And there's still, I think, a good amount of money at stake here in terms of who can score what. I mean, Kanye's claiming that his assets have been frozen for back taxes or tax evasion, something that I think sort of the other shoe hasn't dropped on. So much more to be seen here as our usual characters are elevated to the national, even global stage. Okay, Kelly, who is on the podcast this week? This week, we have Jim Small. He is editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror, and he's going to catch us up to speed on Arizona's election, which conspiracy theorists in a couple fringe counties are still doing their best to keep alive. I absolutely love the Arizona Mirror, and Arizona as a state and as sort of a locus of occult right-wing activity is a great passion of ours here, and so I'm excited to dive into this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass." 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers. The people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right. We are joined by Jim Small. He's the editor-in-chief of the Arizona Mirror. Jim, how's it going? Going great. How are you guys doing? We're good. Thanks for joining us. So... Jim, Arizona obviously swung left this election and top line, I'm wondering what you make of that trend. Is it just that Arizona is an increasingly liberal state or does this have to do with, I'm sorry, kind of the piss poor Republican candidates this cycle? It's a little bit of both. I think Arizona is increasingly purple and we've seen that the last several cycles. What was once the rock ribbed conservative home of Barry Goldwater and and was just a deep red state is now because of changing demographics and people moving in and the Latino population coming of age and registering to vote and becoming more politically active definitely is becoming more purple. But at the same time, in 2022, I don't think that there's really any other conclusion to reach other than the fact that Republicans, at least at the statewide level, put up a whole slate of election-denying pro-Trump MAGA candidates and Arizona voters, in particular Republican Arizona voters, a portion of them are just sick of that. They don't want those candidates to get elected and they crossed party lines and either held their nose and voted for Democrats or they decided to skip those races altogether, which which gave Democrats an advantage and let them win some of the most highly competitive and really highly contested races. We've talked about it a little on this pod, but Arizona seems to be one of the only states where some of the election fraud myth is still sticking. There's some of that narrative around Cary Lake. And I'm wondering why you think it's succeeded here and not, say, in Pennsylvania. It's been interesting to watch the way it has kind of held its ground here. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Arizona has been Republican for so long, right? The only time, except for Biden's victory over Trump, the last time that we had elected, Arizona had chosen a Democratic presidential candidate was Bill Clinton's re-election campaign in 1996. And before that, I think it had been like 40 or 50 years. And so it's really, more than anything, I think it's a shock to Republicans in Arizona. They have been so used to winning every election and so used to winning them easily and not even really having to worry about losing that for them, I think it feels like all of a sudden the world, the the ground has shifted underneath them. And the political realities are so different from what they expect and what they're used to that I think grasping on to the election denialism and the vote rigging and the Dominion machines and all of that is almost sort of a reaction to the fact that they look around and they see a political landscape that they don't recognize. Do you think that's why Arizona really has become such a hotbed for these conspiracy theories? This idea that unlike some of these other states that have been battleground states for a while, I feel like we see a lot of examples of people saying like, well, everyone I know voted for Carrie Lake and stuff like that. Yeah, 
it is. Arizona has become a battleground state really in the age of social media. And, and we've all seen what the age of social media has done to political discourse and to rational thought in a lot of ways. And so I think you kind of combine those things together and you end up with a situation where voters don't really know what to make of things. And so they're reaching around, they're grasping for anything they can find that tries to explain what's happening. And self-reflection is obviously something that is probably not as prevalent in politics as it needs to be. And so rather than look and say, hey, you know what, maybe we, I think a lot about that postmortem after Obama beat Romney, right? And the Republicans sat down and said, boy, we need to look at what happened and where did we go wrong and how did we lose this election? And they came up with this report that said, here's all of these things that we think we should do, the direction we think the party should go. And so many people in the party looked at that report and said, well, this requires us to change what we're talking about, what we're doing and change the way that we, we talk about our opponents and change the way that we approach people who we otherwise would try to marginalize. And that's going to be a lot of hard work. Or we could just go the exact opposite direction. We could just demonize people even more and we can we could just really double down on some of the things that clearly played into that loss. And I think Arizona is a really good example of where a lot of that attitude has taken root. And it's turned into kind of its own animal in a lot of ways. And it's not just people in Arizona hyping these election fraud hoaxes. It's also a lot of the West. It's a lot of election deniers, period, across the U.S. But can you tell us a little bit about this interstate coalition of conspiracy theorists who've sort of descended on Arizona recently? We had this whole group of out-of-state conspiracy theorists that were really, anyone who's been on Telegram or on right-wing Twitter has seen the hashtag revote. And that is something that's really being pushed by a group of folks from out-of-state, Joe Altman in Colorado, one of the leaders of it, David Clement in New Mexico, Ben Berkwam from California. These folks have really been rallying people to try to push for a revote in Arizona because of our election day problem. And they've all descended on Arizona, or at least they did earlier this month at the end of November, to try to get voters to to come onto their side and to try to really create a pressure campaign on elections officials to to somehow do a revote, which is not something that's even possible under the law or the Constitution. But no one seemed to care, which was the really fascinating thing. I mean, they were here. A whole bunch of these folks showed up at the Maricopa County board meeting a couple weeks ago when, when they were canvassing the election and they spoke and they railed and they ranted against the county and the officials and, and talked about how this was stealing democracy and it was the end of the constitutional republic as we know it. But at the same time, they really weren't able to get much traction, I think, outside of their Telegram channels and outside of some of the maybe the Facebook groups, the Twitter spaces. And what it came down to is they were at a park across the street from the Capitol to hold these rallies. And there were maybe 50 people there. But a lot of them weren't even there for that. They were there for another protest that had to do with murdered and missing indigenous women who were trying to raise awareness for that. So even the numbers that they cited were pretty inflated from what the reality was on the ground. What is the situation with these counties that are refusing to certify the election or were refusing to certify it? I mean, this has been bubbling since the election, but I think a lot of folks may have lost touch with what exactly is going on. Right. So Arizona has 15 counties and state law requires that after the election, the counties have between six and 20 days to certify their election. There were a couple of counties who don't delayed it, who showed up to certify the election and said, eh, we're not comfortable with it yet. We want to delay it. But they were within that six to 20 days. And so they ended up showing up on day 20 and voting to certify the election. One county in particular, Cochise County, which is in southern Arizona down near the U.S.-Mexico border, their Republicans, the two Republicans that control that three-member board, were citing problems that were really unspecified with the electronic ballot tabulators that they had. They were, they were listening to a lot of conspiracy theorists and some of the election deniers and decided 
decided that, well, even though we're statutorily obligated to certify the election on November 28th, we're going to ignore the advice of our county attorney and of basically anyone else who understood election law. And we're not going to do that. And we're at a risk of felony because that's a class six felony charge. We're going to delay it and we're going to try to set up this grand showdown between the state election officials and these election deniers. We're going to give them each 20 minutes to show up at a special meeting to talk about the election machines. And one side can talk about why they think they're safe and the other side can show up and they can give them a platform to to talk about why these machines are evil and why they're ruining elections and, and all of this stuff. And a court stepped in and said, just like they did in New Mexico back in the springtime when Otero County decided to kind of do the same thing, court here stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. You're ordered to basically meet in the next hour to show up to certify the election and to approve it. So that way the state can actually do its statewide election canvas, which just happened this week as well. What's so fascinating about Cochise County is it isn't even in their interest not to certify the election because this is a solidly red district and not certifying would, I think it would have influenced a statewide superintendent role and also a Congress member if they didn't certify their election results. Can you just like explain what would have happened if these guys actually did stick to their guns? Oh, yeah. Had they done it, we were already in uncharted waters, right? I don't think we've ever had a county that had skipped out on certifying a vote and had delayed it even past the deadline in the first place. But if they had ultimately decided not to move forward with certifying the election, it would have been disastrous for Republicans, I think, because you have a situation where there's about 47,000 votes down there. It is a two to one Republican county. Republicans dominated down there. It would have meant that Kerry Lake would have lost by more. It would have meant that the AG's race would have become right now separated by about 500 votes for the Democrat. It would have been several, probably about eight or 10,000 votes for the Democrat. The superintendent of public instruction, who is kind of the statewide schools chief, would have flipped. It would have gone from a Republican who won by about 8,000 votes, would have gone to the Democrat winning by, a, by about 1,000 votes. And a congressional race, a new district that was won by a Republican, Juan Siscomani, a former aide to Governor Doug Ducey. He narrowly defeated a Democratic state legislator in that race for Congress, and that would have absolutely flipped as well. And the idea that that they were looking to leverage, essentially to disenfranchise every voter in the county as a way to make a protest against what happened in Maricopa County, a county that's, I don't know, 300 miles away, that had some election day printer problems, was certainly odd. And I think it had most Republicans in the state, not all, mind you, but a good number of Republicans in the state scratching their head and going, well, what is the end goal here? And what are we trying to actually prove? And what are we going to accomplish? So moving forward, Carrie Lake has not really conceded defeat. It looks like she's indicating she's going to sue the state. Can you give us the state of the lawsuits that you're expecting to see coming out in the next couple months? Yeah. In fact, all these lawsuits are going to be filed this week. There's five days to file these lawsuits. So we don't know exactly what Carrie Lake is going to allege in her lawsuit specifically, although I think we have some idea that it's going to center on the printer problems that Maricopa County had on Election Day. Essentially, what happened was these printers for on-demand ballots, someone shows up at a voting center, they're able to get a ballot printed just for them that has all of the races they need. The printers were printing too light in some places. And what that meant was when the voter filled out the ballot and they went to a tabulator and inserted the ballot, the tabulator couldn't read them. And so instead, what they had to do was take those ballots and put them into a special box, a secure box, and have the ballots taken down to the county headquarters where they were counted after the election. 
Carrie Lake's campaign has alleged that a couple of things on social media, they've been making all kinds of claims. But I think the gist of what they're saying is that these printer problems led to a lot of voters being disenfranchised, either because there were really long lines and voters couldn't stick around in them, or even to some of the more extreme claims that these ballots weren't ever really counted or that they were manipulated in some way. And the idea that these printer problems were targeted and were intentionally placed into Republican communities, which a lot of research and a lot of investigating has shown that that's just simply not true. The other lawsuit that we know we're going to get this week is one from Abe Hamaday, who is the Republican nominee for attorney general. He lost his race to Democrat Chris Mays by 510 votes, triggers an automatic recount. He filed a lawsuit at the end of November alleging that essentially these same printer problems and some other errors in election administration across the state that they essentially should have swung the election in his favor. The lawsuit was dismissed. It was filed too early. So the judge, when he dismissed it, said it's not the right time to file the lawsuit. But once the statewide canvas happens, you can come back and file it again. We fully expect that he's going to file it again. The litigation on that is going to be really interesting because the lawsuit makes a bunch of claims but has no evidence. And in a hearing before the lawsuit was dismissed, the attorney for Abe Hamaday essentially acknowledged that we need to do a lot of discovery and we need to get a lot of documents from these counties and see a lot of the election records because we need to basically find things that prove our claims. And so that's going to be, I think, a major focus of that case is can they even bring a case if they don't have any evidence or are they able to file a lawsuit, make these claims, and then use the idea of those claims to go out and find the evidence from the counties. One thing that's very funny to me about all this is it's almost like some of these folks are still campaigning, right? You're going on kind of this fishing expedition for documents via a lawsuit. And there are folks like Mark Fincham, the failed Secretary of State candidate, who's using these lawsuit threats as a way of fundraising. Can you tell me a little bit about how they're pivoting this forward, maybe how Mark Fincham is making some money off of this? Yeah, Mark Fincham, he was trying to raise $200,000, I think, to file a lawsuit challenging his election. He lost badly, too, by the way. He lost, I think, among all the statewide Republicans, he lost the worst to Adrian Fontes. And he's trying to raise $200,000 to fund this litigation. Heavens knows what is going to say in that litigation. Mark Fincham has been a dyed-in-the-wool election denier since 2020. He's made no bones about really cozying up to the QAnon crowd. He's been at the forefront and really kind of built a national profile as someone who embraces just about every every kind of conspiracy theory out there. If he was able to raise $200,000, I'd be very surprised. That would amount to about 20%, maybe a little bit more than that, of what he raised during the campaign. But it is definitely this idea that the campaign never ends. I think we're seeing it. I mean, Fincham is a good example. He's out there actively raising money. Carrie Lake has been raising some money, too, or making some pitches for it to try to fund her legal effort. Her social media posture has really not changed a whole lot from what it looked like during the campaign, except right now it's all focused on finding stories from voters who had a difficult time on Election Day. Blake Masters, I think, is the one who's really kind of gone quietly into the night on this. He lost pretty decisively to Mark Kelly in the U.S. Senate race, and he's the only one who is conceded his race and really seems to have just stepped back from the political arena for the moment. So what involvement has Turning Point USA had within Arizona? And relatedly, why are we not seeing the kind of big election protests that we saw in 2020 and then also in Florida in 2018? I mean, you have all these kind of right-wing personalities circling Arizona, but it seems like we aren't seeing these kind of like campouts outside the election board. Yeah, Turning Point USA is headquartered in Phoenix. And so they've got a outsized presence, I think, in our kind of political arena. A lot of people who are involved with Turning Point. A lot of the leaders in Turning Point were heavily involved in Carrie Lake's campaign and were helping lead that campaign. And so 
we've seen a lot, and they were very involved. They spent a lot of money to get Carrie Lake elected, to get Blake Masters elected, and to get Abe Hamaday elected. And as far as the protests, the Lake campaign has been very out front saying that they did not want to see their supporters out gathering for protests and doing rallies, essentially telling their supporters, stay home for now. Let us, we're going to handle this on the legal front. We'll let you know what it is we need from you and whether when it's time to come out and protest. They've kind of left the door open on that. I don't know if that's genuine or not, or if it's something where they're just trying to try to set the stage for something later. But it has been interesting. I do think a lot of this has to do with trying to avoid some of those optics that we saw in 2020. In Arizona in particular, we had days of protests outside of the county elections department where they were counting the ballots to the point where they had to fence it off. There were SWAT county sheriff SWAT members that were there to try to protect elections workers as they were going to their cars. People were being harassed. This year, they were well prepared for that. They put up fencing weeks before the election to make sure that the protesters couldn't show up and couldn't essentially commandeer the parking lot in front of the building. Carrie Lake's campaign, one thing that they were very, very good at because of her background as a TV anchor, is understanding the way things work in the media and understanding how things look on TV. And I think that they have really gone out of their way to try to avoid, in the post-election climate, to try to avoid having some of those protests that we saw where they were filled two years ago with people like Alex Jones and Ali Alexander and Mark Fingham was a big part of it and folks like Paul Gosar who were down there essentially trying to rile up the crowd and really trying to whip things into a furor. And certainly, I think as we're now two years into this kind of election denial mindset, I think anytime we have those big rallies and those big protests where you get a lot of these people who are just furious about what's going on in the election and, and what they think is going on in the election. Every time that happens, I think you really increase the chance for violence. And I don't know if that was necessarily the motivation for Carrie Lake and her supporters and her campaign team to keeping the rallies at a minimum and the protests at a minimum. But it's definitely, I think, an added benefit is that you have kind of taken the temperature down and you reduce the chance that something violent is going to happen. Oh, that's always a fringe benefit of having a really media savvy weirdo running a campaign. Jim, thank you so much for your time. This is so fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, and now it's time for a fresh hell. Will, QAnon finally caught a groomer. <laughs> yes, this is an interesting story I wrote for the Daily Beast. I think this is some truly interesting fresh hell this week. So there's a major QAnon guy named Phil Godlewski, and we talked about him a little bit in the past, but he is a guy who operates out of Pennsylvania. He kind of marches to the beat of his own drummer, even within QAnon. This is like a lot of QAnon guys don't kind of welcome him to the larger fold. But he's got a lot of fans. He just bought a house for nearly $2 million in cash. He makes at least $10,000 a month, according to some court records, based on this multi-level marketing scheme involving the sale of silver. So this is a guy, he's got hundreds of thousands of subscribers on various platforms. So this guy is a real player. But he seems to have undone himself or sort of owned himself here because the quick backstory here is that Phil once worked in, I believe, 2008 as a high school baseball coach. And according to court records and various criminal charges, he befriended a female freshman at this high school who was grieving the recent death by suicide of her boyfriend. And now according to her, in a sworn statement, he cozied up to her in this vulnerable position and they began a sexual relationship. He was 10 years older than her and ultimately he was charged over this thing. He pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of corrupting a minor. So his local newspaper, now that he's a big QAnon guy, his local newspaper reported on this and this was last year and this infuriated him and he raised roughly 30,000 bucks 
to from his fans to sue this newspaper. So there's this irony here, right? Which is this QAnon guy. QAnon people are always on the hunt for pedophiles. And now this QAnon guy turns out to have this pass with this corruption of a minor charge. So he sues this newspaper in what I think appears to be a pretty big loser of a case. But the newspaper decides that they'll play ball. <laughs> They're going to find out stuff. <laughs> So they do discovery on this guy, and they get way more details about these allegations. And most damningly, so he says, look, I don't have any text messages with this woman who's now in her mid-20s. I don't have any text messages, no contact with her, this kind of stuff. Very limited contact with her. However, he's also telling his fan, this woman is conniving. Her mom was just trying to get money from me. I mean, at, at this point, he was like a realtor. So I don't know how much money there was to be had. I mean, just kind of a local Pennsylvania realtor. This is before the QAnon money hit. And so this young woman is seeing these videos, and she's getting upset and she says why are you lying about me and so she goes to the newspaper's attorneys in october and she says look i'm gonna tell you the truth which is all this vile stuff this guy did and in fact not only that but i got these text messages that according to the newspaper's lawyers suggest he was trying to suborn perjury from her in this new lawsuit so look i mean this guy just recently put out a video threatening to sue me in a very kind of classic style where these guys often put out videos where they're in a driver's seat and it's like wait is this guy driving right now and he's recording a video that's not good be a little careful with our language here. Basically, the newspaper dropped this absolute barn burner of emotion. I think the most just like twisted, just like burn it all down motion I've ever seen filed in a court case where they say, okay, this guy says he never had sex with this young woman either as a teenager or as an adult. Well, and he says he doesn't have these text messages. Well, she gave us her phone. And in fact, there's hundreds of text messages and other things, including a video he sent of himself with his erect penis. Now, this is when she would have been an adult. So he said in sworn testimony that he had never had sex with this woman. And then they have text messages where he purportedly says things like, sorry, your grandpa died. I think we had sex a lot in his bed, though. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> these texts are terrible. Like, it's actually jaw-dropping reading these because they're pretty overt. And it's the kind of thing that if you're a lawyer, it's like, well, dust your hands, case closed. Because, I mean, you could only really get this worse by, like, having filmed the deed itself. Yeah, I mean, they have the police reports about the text messages when she was 15, where he's saying things like, allegedly, oh, gosh, oh, why are you only 15? I'll get over it, though. And, oh, we got to have sex multiple times a day. Again, this is a guy in his mid-20s talking to a 15-year-old. Just how explicit this stuff is and this idea that he's claiming, oh, this is totally fake. She also says in an affidavit that he, during this police investigation, that he basically said, well, I'm going to kill myself if you cooperate with the police. And so she stopped cooperating. That's how he got a lesser charge. So this is all in my article. This stuff goes on and on and on. I mean, he's talking really explicitly about his sexual performance in sort of a negative light. I will say I did not include all of that. So taking it to the present day. So they have all these text messages. He claims he did not have any text messages. So that means wait a minute, did this guy lie? Did he lie during discovery? Did he hide text messages or delete them or withhold them? But I think the most interesting part is during this lawsuit, he's texting her and saying, hey, I have an opportunity for a big financial windfall, but we need to work together and we need to figure out exactly what we're going to do. So he's saying, oh, we have to discuss this in person. The implication being, according to the defense attorneys, that this guy is saying, look, I need you to once again lie so that we can make some money here with this defamation case. So I will say this QAnon guy, I think the way to sum it up here is this is a QAnon guy who, because I think of the pressures of keeping his following and not being tagged with this grooming charge, that he had to say, no, I'm going to sue. And, and we see this a lot from people who say when a damaging story comes out that they're going to sue. It's a very Trumpian move. It's extremely Trumpian. And it reminds me of something that we talked about earlier in this podcast where Trump is saying, I never said I was going to terminate the Constitution. When you can scroll back a day and a half and see exactly where he said that. I think a lot of these guys, I don't know if they fully believe their 
their lives, if they get so amped up on these followings that they think that they genuinely are combating pedophilia or whatever. But I mean, these are documents that he had on his phone. He objectively was involved in these things. I think it's interesting, though, how much this case shows of the inner workings of a QAnon influencer. You pointed out that he bought a what, $1.7 million home in Pennsylvania, which that gets you a lot in, in cash, in cash in Pennsylvania. That's going to get you a lot. And another fascinating element of this is you mentioned that so some of his money is probably coming from his fans in the form of donations, but some of it's coming from this silver multi-level marketing scheme. And that's something that so many influencers on the right do. I mean, just take your pick. I was on Benny Johnson's website for some reason the other day. And at the bottom of all his culture war weird stuff is, hey, you should use promotion code Benny or whatever to get your unmarked silver ingots, because that's what's going to save you when the collapse comes. I think it's so interesting that this guy was able to parlay this just noxious personality into a silver salesman. And the, the cherry on all this is when he is is talking to this woman saying, hey, there's going to be a financial windfall if we work together. He has to clarify that he's not shilling his precious metal scheme. That's something else. Yes, that's really funny. Yes. In these supposed perjury text messages, he says, like, there's a way for us to make a lot of money. And she says, like, "Ugh, is this the, the silver thing? <laughs> And he's like, no, 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 that's for the other people. So you get into the stuff about money and we love to focus on the money here because I think often the motivations for these figures and how real this thing is. So as my story was in the works, he announces that, I mean, of course, he knew this was happening. He announces that he's going to have a giveaway of just giving money to his followers. And so then that day the story comes out, he then just is like, tell me a sad story. I'm going to give you some money. So this was a nice distraction for his fans. However, in the Telegram chats where his fans hang out, the story was received. People were saying, oh gosh does phil know the daily beast wrote this story and people say oh geez <laughs> look at this and so it seems like maybe it did not necessarily work but i just love the poetic irony here of a QAnon guy being involved in this and also suing this newspaper and in fact revealing far more than i think he wanted to well they're always talking about getting the documents and this time they did so good work <laughs> phil yes d class now yes <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.